Last week we were uh, chatting, I think, okay, there it comes in again. Some terms that are used to refer to demons. So you obviously have all the ones that apply to Satan, which we just read, right? There's also the word demon. There's, there'll be the word false gods in the Old Testament. If we understand, some people look at the Old Testament, New Testament and say demons don't really show up until Jesus is on the scene. And there's some sense in which that's true. But if you understand the fact that when Elijah is on the mount fighting against, um, fighting, or he's battling it out with Ahab, right? And they've got these sacrifices, the altars built. The people that Ahab's people were worshiping, is, the way they were worshiping is totally demonic, right? And so the false gods, you can equate with demonic influence, demonic, they're, they're worshiping false gods, um, and so basically, when you're looking in the Old Testament and you see the word false gods, start thinking, this is like the other false religions that were around Israel had demonic uh, origins. They were perhaps worshiping demons. They were do- certainly doing practices that fit in with uh, the demonic realm. A couple of other terms that you might come across. We've talked about, uh, you know, the God of this age or the one who is in the world. Those kind of more refer to Satan. Uh, so the one who is in this world, that's 1 John 4, 4. The God of this age is 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. We're not going to go through all these because we've got to kind of get to some other stuff. Unclean spirit, Matthew 12, verse 43, could be perhaps a reference to that uh, idea. Matthew 12, 43, unclean spirit. Psalm 106, 37 to 38, talks about false gods. That's where we uh, go for false gods. We have evil spirits. Pretty much some of these you, you read and you're like, yeah, of course, that, it just makes sense. It's kind of lo- very logical. But just so you get the idea of the, the, the semantic range of what refers to the demonic. So that's Acts 19 verse 13 is evil spirits. Mark 1 verse 23 is impure spirits. And then uh, at different times, there are references to devils or, uh, you know, the devil, I guess we've kind of mentioned that already, but those are some different terms that are used. But now we want to talk a little bit also about the abilities and limitations that demons have. So if you remember from a few weeks ago, we talked about angels and we talked about the abilities and limitations that angels have. So you can kind of go back and just apply most of those to the demonic realm because demons would be fallen angels. One theologian that I was reading was kind of helpful in explaining that Demons should not be thought of necessarily as having equal power as angels because basically sin always corrupts, sin always destroys, sin always weakens in that sense. And so figuring, you know, and it's kind of obviously angels, good, holy, righteous angels are on God's side. So they absolutely have access to more power. Uh, But demons in some sense being uh, perhaps more limited than angels. But here's some things that we can think about. that specifically I think will be of help to us kind of recapping about angels limitations. Demons can likely based on what we know of scripture, likely not know our thoughts, right? So God in his sovereignty knows our thoughts. Psalm 139 2 we'll go to as uh, kind of a key verse for that. Where it speaks about 
David speaking to the Lord saying this, you know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. So God clearly knows our thoughts. Jesus knows the thoughts of the Pharisees when they're talking to him. He knows exactly what they're, they're thinking. So God, Jesus, they know our thoughts. And there's multiple places in the Old Testament where God's knowledge is compared or is, I guess, superlatively compared saying like nobody else is like God who knows all these things in his knowledge. And so it's very, and there's also no indication anywhere in scripture that demons know our thoughts. Now, interestingly, there's a lot of dark occultic practices that perhaps could mirror kind of what we might describe as like knowing our thoughts and it might be kind of freaky. I hope none of you have been involved in that. I, I know I, I certainly haven't, but you hear the experiences of some and they talk about, you know, whether it's mediums or whether it's, you know, palm readers or whatever else. And they can tell all sorts of things about your life. That's kind of a little creepy, right? Um, but if you think about it, it's probably not to be chalked up to knowing thoughts so much as observing your life. So if I was to be a fly on the wall in your life and hearing all the words you said and all the places you went and all the things you did, I would probably be able to observe and understand quite a lot about you and make inferences based on that. And if there's actually people that have some kind of interaction with the demonic realm and are utilizing satanic powers that have access, certainly demons could observe your behavior, could observe your life, uh, and observe and hear what you say. And so they could come by a lot of, basically they could come by a lot of information that way in that sense. And so just realize though, there's no scriptural evidence that would suggest that demons could know your thoughts. So that would be kind of like a limitation for them. Now there seems to be examples in scripture where the demon, the devil, Satan can plant thoughts in our minds, not know our thoughts, but can kind of plant temptations or thoughts. For example, this one's kind of a little bit interesting, but in First Chronicles chapter 21, we see David. And this, in two passages, it's, it's different. So in one passage, it kind of, I think, clearly attributes it to David's own flesh. Maybe you could say, but in verse 20 or chapter 21, verse one of first Chronicles, it says, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel, incited, tempted, planted an idea perhaps before David, at least causing it to come across his mind, right? This idea to number Israel in this context, that was something that was actually not good for him to do. It was basically David by counting the number of people in Israel was relying on his own strength and not on the sovereignty and power of God. And because of that, there was a pretty dark and dismal consequence for David. But in that, that's kind of an instance where we might see this idea of Satan planting a thought or putting a thought before us. Uh, John 13 verse 2 in the New Testament refers to Judas Iscariot and his... Uh, plans to betray Jesus. And it says this in John 13 two, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son 
to betray him. So talking there, it would appear almost as though Satan had planted this thought in Judas to betray, uh, to betray Jesus. So kind of putting the idea before him. Ultimately, we're going to talk about this later, but ultimately we are responsible for our actions. So you can't just blame it on the devil. The devil made it me do it, that kind of idea. And we'll have scriptural evidence for that later. But there is this thought that it seems as though Satan or the devil or demon, the demonic realm, can put the thought before us. Acts 5 verse 3 is another example where in the early church, the, uh, it's interesting, one of the, the first problems they have, real harsh discipline, um, is where people have lied, they've misrepresented the truth, Ananias and Sapphira, Uh, And it says there in verse 3 of Acts 5, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So there's one sense in which every single sinful thought that we act on is ultimately sourced in Satan, the, the father of lies, right? But it, it could be in this sense that there's an extra sense of which Satan had attacked, had, had planted the thought, uh, had put that in there, filled his heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Again, we don't want to give Satan too much credit, too much ability, but we do need to be realizing that there's this, uh, this idea. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1. This is uh, Paul speaking to his protege, Timothy, and he says this, 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, so that the demons are somehow teaching, maybe through people, through false teachers, but they're planting the thoughts in people's mind. And that's not really that radical a thought in some ways. Right now, I'm actually planting a thought in your head if you're listening, right? Um, to some degree. But demons perhaps can do it even in an inaudible way, putting the temptation before you, right? You probably all had moments in your life where something comes across your mind, an evil thought that you're like, it's just, it's like, where did that come from? Because it's like, just dark and you're like, Am I, like, that's evil. Like, that's not the way I normally think, right? Um, that could be, in a sense, the, the demonic, the Satan putting something into your mind, accusing you, putting thoughts in your mind that are just very out of character and not necessarily even, uh, not, not even the same as your flesh, right? Your flesh uh, is also a source of sin, which we'll talk about. So the idea he can put thoughts in our minds uh, seems to have some merit there. The application of this very, very right away. Sorry. Even your old, maybe your old memories, the old thoughts that he brings up. Well, he wouldn't be able to read your thoughts, right? But he could bring back old, like things that you've done, bring back and use it to accuse you. Absolutely, in the sense of like, well. We all, when you have knowledge of what somebody has done in the past, you can use that as accusation against them later in life, right? That would be not right if they're a believer in Jesus Christ and they're forgiven, but we could hold that out against them. And Satan, I guess, in the sense, same sense could do that, right? Hold it back 
and accuse us of it. That's where Jesus is so much different because Jesus forgives us and then remembers our sins no more. And Satan could use uh, our thoughts, could put thoughts in our mind that God does remember our sins and still holds them against us. And we're, we're never going to get past that or beyond that and fill us with lies like that. And so in that sense, I, I suppose, but remember like he doesn't go and read every thought you've ever had. There's no, there's no evidence anyways, that that would be his ability. So if you go to first, uh, where were you? Second Corinthians 10 verse five, this just is like, I guess the importance of why this verse is so important once you realize, okay, our thoughts that are in our head aren't all sourced in ourselves necessarily. That's why you realize, okay, we've got to be very careful about what our thoughts are and what we do with our thoughts, right? So 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, Paul says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience. So the idea of taking every thought captive to obey Christ is just because you thought it doesn't mean it's a good thought. And obviously all of us have realized that at some point, but we need to take those thoughts and submit them to take them captive to obey Christ. See what do they line up? Do they not? So um, I know this, this struck me probably a couple of years ago, really, really uh, strong just the idea that just because I believe something doesn't make it right, which is pretty, a pretty simple belief or pretty simple realization, but something that I think some of us need to come to grips with is just because you believe something and are utterly convinced about it does not make it true or right. We need to take that captive, those thoughts, those ways of thinking, even take them captive to what the word of God says to obedience to Christ. Right? Obviously we did that. If you're, um, if you were converted to Christ at a later stage in life, you did that very drastically, right? You took all the ways of you that you were thinking and you take them captive and start obeying Christ. Their life direction changes. But if you have a story like mine, where you grew up in the church, you can almost get this notion that I already think the right way. It's like, yeah, they're slightly refining, but there's like, I, I already basically am. My default setting is good. And that's not, not entirely accurate, right? Obviously, it takes a little while to figure that out. But as you're reading scripture, you're like, wait, like, I believe this since a child. And I thought that that was the way it was. But scripture is presenting me something totally different. So we have to take that thought captive to Christ. So we need to do that with every thought, recognizing that even the thoughts that we think, oh, that's my thought. It's a good thought. It could be not our thought, right? It could be... Um, from Satan. You also realize, uh, you know, the heart is deceitful, really wicked, who can know it. So just because your heart believes it doesn't make it good either. Um, but taking every thought captive to Christ, a very, very instant point of application. Can demons possess Christians? This is like the question that gets asked all the time. When we come to their abilities and limitations, it's interesting because there's a few ways of looking at this. Number one, there is not really good precedent in the New Testament to use the word possess in one sense. I haven't like done this research firsthand. This is all secondhand that I've understood from theologians that have read this, that they're telling me uh, the word demon possession doesn't actually show up in the New Testament. It's more demonize. 
or have a demon. It, it might kind of be not a big deal either way. The idea is Satan or Jesus does cast out demons. So it kind of sounds like they're demon possessed, whether it's possessed or significantly oppressed or what it is. There is this truth that if you're talking about demon possession and you are wondering whether Christians can be demon possessed in the sense of the demon controls their will, controls them in that sense, the answer would be no, right? Because Christians have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit and where the spirit is, there's freedom in that sense, right? We can be at the same time though, oppressed or afflicted by demons. Absolutely. And so we'll see some, some scriptures that speak about, uh, speak about that, but just recognize that when we talk about possession in the new Testament, there, there may be an element of to possess, uh, being possessed by a demon uh, especially in the, the case of the one man that was demon-possessed, was going crazy, and then the demons were cast out into a herd of pigs, right? He was like, that guy was like not in his right mind uh, at that moment. And so if you're going to talk about possession, that would be maybe a case. But there's sense, times in the, the Bible, and we'll see a verse in a little bit that speaks about different strengths of demons. Actually, I should... Uh, yeah, we'll go there actually right away. Matthew 12, verse 45. Matthew 12, verse 45. This is in the middle of Jesus explaining uh, explaining about this, this demon. It says, verse 43, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it, it will find the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, more evil than itself being the key there. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is far is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. So that would kind of give you an idea. Okay. The story he's telling has the idea of like a demon, at least maybe not possessing, but indwelling, dwelling in uh, this person, Right. This kind of tells us, okay, it's not enough to just get rid of the evil, let's say in a, in a non-believer who is indwelt by a demon, let's say. It's not enough to just get rid of the evil. There has to be the invading of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you're just leaving them open for worse to come, right? Um, so anyways, that whole idea of there's demons of different uh, different levels of evil, you could say, right? This other spirit's more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there. Certainly the, uh, some of the, the accounts where somebody is being oppressed by a demon is far worse than others, right? Um, and certainly different, different uh, numbers as we'll see in a moment. Chris, yep. Why does it say uh, through waterless places? Great. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> As I was reading, I'm like, oh, I did not look this one up. So when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places. So through deserts, perhaps, right? That would be a waterless place seeking rest, but finding none. I'm not exactly sure though. I'll have to give it, go back to it. I, I wondered if it has something to do with the, the Holy Spirit, the water of life that comes from God. And I don't think I would draw that connection. But I don't think so. Um, yes, like 
Jesus speak, spoken of as like, I am the living water, that kind of idea. But I'm not sure that that's where I would go with this passage, drawing connections between that. It's kind of when you take a, we got to be careful with some of those analogies that Jesus says. So Jesus says, I am the living water. He obviously is not saying I am like literal water, right? Um, but he's making a, a point, which is, uh, in that case, water is necessary for life, right? And so in the same sense, this lady was coming to the well for water to drink. He's like, I'm the living water. I'm like, ten to, like I'm the water that you need. So he's using it as an analogy. But I wouldn't go here and say it passes through waterless places saying, okay, it passes through places that the living water isn't seeking rest. Um, I don't know that that's where it's going. I, I think I would just say it passes through deserts finding rest, seeking rest. Ray? Um, I wonder sometimes if that's referring to passing through the universe, most of the rest of the universe. Probably. That don't have water? They don't have water, like the plants that we have discovered and so forth. There's some evidence on some of them that there has been water, but they're not now. Okay, yeah. That they're searching through the universe for a place to rest, but find some. Yeah. <laughs> Because they're angelic beings, they have access to a... Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, there could be that. I'm going to have to get back to you on that one and answer that at the beginning of next week or something. But uh, it's a a good question, right? We want to understand what it says. Certainly the point of this passage, it seems like... So, for example, can unclean spirits... What I, I look at this, unclean spirits don't need to have somebody to dwell in to exist right they don't need to have a body to exist so i'm trying to understand how that actually is fitting into this context right that it's finding no rest and then it says come back so the point of the passage is talking about you know you you take this like get rid of this demon but you don't actually deal with the like fill it up fill somebody up properly and it actually makes it worse than it was in the first place so you know, this could be even the idea of, in our world, we talk about like emptying your mind, emptying your mind, emptying your mind. Well, if you don't fill your mind with what God wants you to think about, you actually don't make your life better, right? Um, the whole idea of the last state of the person is worse than the first. So I'm going to write that down as a uh, thing to come back to. And if I think it's of enough relevance for all of you, then we'll make mention of it. next time. So a couple of uh, abilities that demons have, they obviously, when they, they indwell a person or when they uh, oppress a person, however you want to say it, they can sometimes manifest it in unusual strength. So if we go to Mark chapter five, we're going to see there. Oh, like the whole idea of emptying your mind, yeah, which isn't a biblical concept, right? Yeah, that would be like yoga or I'm trying to think of other examples where people are just like, okay, empty your mind, which they're trying to say like free yourself from all distractions, which is good in one sense, but if you don't put your attention on the right things, then you're actually not doing what scripture has commanded you to, right? Um, Okay, so sometimes demons, uh, when they have been oppressing people in biblical times. It talks about in Mark 5. 
They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but wrenched the chains apart, chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. So, Mark 5? Yeah, Mark 5. And so he had great strength. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So the demon that is at work in this man's life is destroying his life, uh, but is also giving him super, super strength, right? So that's one uh, example of, I guess, demons at work in a human being. Luke chapter 8, verse 27 when Jesus had stepped out on land, there was a man from a, there, he, there met him a man from the city who had demons. And for a long time, he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. Again, kind of similar to our, our past one. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. So this is actually interesting for a lot of reasons. We'll keep reading. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Maybe this is tied to that waterless, uh, waterless places that we were talking about, not going into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let him, them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. And that did not improve Jesus' public ratings. <laughs> so the people did not really like him. Um, so we learned a couple of things, right? Demons, they were able to enter the pigs there. So they have some ability to enter into animals. They cause great destruction. As soon as they enter the pigs, they rush down the steep bank into the lake and drown. So I'm not really sure why the demons were so interested in entering the pigs because within a few short minutes or seconds, the pigs are dead anyways. So <laughs> it's like, I'm not really sure what the, just to destroy, they want to exert their power and destroy things. I'm not exactly sure, right? We have legion for many demons that entered him, kind of similar to the other passage that talked about seven demons coming back, right? Um, and so the idea of like multiple demons attacking somebody uh, is there. Noticing again, these aren't Christians that are being indwelt by demons. These are people that are at the, that time not. And usually it's tied to then their conversion or things drastically turning in their life when Jesus does exercise the demons. So bizarre acts, self-destructive behavior, kind of like what we've seen. There's also Matthew 17, 15, you can look up. And Mark 5, verse 5, which we were just in. But Mark, Matthew 17, 15 being another one. And we talked about some being more evil than others. Demons speak, but it appears when they speak that they use the voice of the person that they're in, um, right? In the idea of the man being 
the man saying we are legion. It was the, it, it appears that it was the man speaking. Who knows if he was using the voice box of the man. Certain, s- certainly Satan somehow can communicate with Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, Satan tempts Jesus and it would appear it's an audible conversation that is happening. Uh, but at any rate, demons could communicate audibly but it would appear it's almost like it uses the the voice of the human, maybe altered. I don't know. We don't have that kind of detail. But Matthew 8. Uh, so when Peter, yeah, so good, good example. So when Peter says to Jesus, like basically this is not the way it's supposed to go. Jesus is talking about his upcoming crucifixion, how he's going to be crucified. And Jesus, or Peter's, um, I'm not quoting properly, but Peter basically says, that's not the way it's going to go. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. So he's, he's not saying that Peter himself is Satan in the flesh. What he's saying is that the statement Peter has just made is actually satanic in its origin because it's trying to prevent Jesus from going to the cross and doing what he's supposed to do. So get behind me, Satan. The idea being that statement is not allowed. That's not appropriate. So get behind me, Satan. So was Satan using Peter's voice? Satan, Peter, I don't believe Peter would have been possessed or indwelt by a demon, but certainly the, the, the thing Peter said was not of God. Similarly to how well-meaning Christians could say things at times that are absolutely not true and actually satanic in their origin in the sense of saying things that are just like not appropriate. Not saying things as far as Jesus is cursed, which First John tells us like a Christian can't say that. Somebody that's indwelled by the Holy Spirit can't say that. But there's certainly times when even as a Christian, you could say things that aren't actually pushing people forward in their faith. They're actually undoing because maybe you're, you're ignorant or you're not saying things properly. In Peter's case, Peter's just thinking in human terms. He's thinking, you shouldn't die. Like, that's not the way it should go, right? But that wasn't in God's, uh, in God's will. That wasn't God's plan. And so that was against him. So demons can speak and we can hear their voice uh, at these times if they're you know, dwelling in a person. They can inhabit animals. So those are some of those abilities, some of those limitations. You know, they don't know our thoughts. Demon possession or indwelling, if you want to call it that, seems to be uh, something that's reflected throughout Scripture to some degree. You think of Saul or Saul um, having an evil spirit plaguing him. I'm going to go to the, the verse. It's a little later on that I had that. But 1 Samuel 16, verse 23 is... Verse 23, so right near the end of that. Saul's being plagued by an evil spirit, a harmful spirit, and he calls to David to play music for him. And when David plays music, verse 23, and whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, harmful spirit meaning the harmful spirit was used by God. It's not like God is the harmful spirit. But this harmful spirit from God was upon Saul. David took the lyre, that's a musical instrument, and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. However, that harmful spirit returned and departed and returned and departed and returned as David played music 
it's kind of an interesting story. The, the point of the story is not for us to go and play music when we think somebody's demon-possessed and be like, I'm going to play music and that's going to, that's going to fix the situation. Um, probably here, it's kind of connecting us to thought, like as David is coming in, David who's man, uh, man after God's own heart, when, his, when he's there, when he's, his presence is there, Saul's like right with the Lord in a sense. He's refreshed, he's well, and the harmful spirit departs from him. Similar to how when Saul is having Samuel around, things seem to be better for Saul. Saul's kind of like the guy when godly men are around him, things are better, but as soon as godly men leave, he's not actually a godly man himself, and so things deteriorate. Yeah, Ray? Mm-hmm. Uh, emotionally, spiritually. Yeah. If you're in distress over something, you know, um, some particular crisis in your life. Yeah. Um, like music can be useful today still. Yep. Put on spiritual music. Yep. Uh, and redirects our focus. Yep. Probably what would be important is like the content of that music, right? So, like, not saying, I guess you could theoretically be in a, a position where you're feeling afflicted or uh, oppressed by demons and you play classical music and you're like, it's helpful. But playing Christian music that speaks the truth of the gospel, speaks the truth of being free in Christ, being like, you know, the God of angels armies is watching over me or whatever you want to, uh, those like kind of Christian themes. Yeah, then music is powerful, right? And God has created music to be a very unique thing. Unfortunately, music, this is kind of a little bit of sidetrack, but I kind of helpfully brought it up. Music, I grew up in a church where music at one point was very easily demonized. So some of you who have been in the church for a while probably are familiar with that kind of culture. At one time, there was a series of, I think, preachers perhaps going around that were popularized that were basically saying if music had a drum beat, it was satanic, right? Clearly, we don't believe that at Harvest. Otherwise, each Sunday is a problem. But, but they actually, like they might have said, you know, Satan is, I, like I've heard some refer to Satan as like the angel of music, which is not scripturally really warranted. There's like maybe a hint in one of those Ezekiel or Isaiah passages that we refer to Satan at the beginning of being a cherub, being perhaps, perhaps, maybe, maybe, maybe involved in some kind of worship, but certainly not the angel of music and all music is like Satan's thing. Satan does work in deceptive ways through, through whatever, forgive the word, medium, right? Whatever, whatever tool he can use, right? So whether that's books that are written that have false teaching or music that's written that has false teaching. But there was for a while this idea that certain styles and genres of music were satanic in and of themselves. So if you play like, and like certain drum beats, like a syncopated drum beat was like not cool and was actually demonic, right? So if you played like on the offbeat, that was demonic. Or if you played with drums, it was demonic. And, and we kind of laugh and smirk at that. But here's the here's thing that I want to just impress upon you. Lots and lots of mature, godly people heard this and jumped on the bandwagon. 
my dad burned boxes of records because of this. And now, years later, maturing in his faith and realizing this was, a, this was totally making a law out of something that should have been, it's like regretful of all these like, records that he burned, right? It's like, oh man, it's, I'm regretful too. Because <laughs> so, I don't get to inherit those things. Now, some of it, on the flip side, we go, like, we go to extremes, right? There's, there's the, the swings to the extreme of like drum beats are of the devil. And then we kind of swing back and now like, it's almost to the point where Christians, it's like tune into whatever radio dial and it doesn't affect me. It doesn't affect me. It doesn't affect me. Well, absolutely what you listen to affects you, right? I can remember a few years ago, uh, especially when I was coming into youth ministry as like doing youth pastoring, just thinking about some of the songs that are played at Christian weddings that are played on Christian playlists all the time. And like, if you actually like stop and listen to the songs, they're like about abusing women in like horrific ways. They're about all kinds of evil. They're about like in some instances, like satanic things. And you're just like, like, why are we listening to this? No, 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 not Christian. (laughs) No, sorry. (laughs) No, not Christian. (laughs) At, At Christian weddings, they would play after, like, they may have a dance, right? And I'm not going to get into dancing, whether it's right or wrong. I'm, I'm kind of like, there's some types that are okay and not, whatever. But here's the point. Here's the point. There's Christians that are like, well, it's a great tune. I'm not really listening to the words. And it's like, well, there's some songs you can't make out the words. But if you, like, stop and you, like, listen and look at it, you're like, why would you even put yourself in, in that place? I know it's a great tune. So like there's a band called Apologetics that takes all these like secular tunes and puts like cheesy Christian lyrics to them. And it's actually hilarious and awesome. And for one guy I knew, it was really helpful because he grew up outside the church and was converted late in life, but loved that music. And this was an awesome way for him to be able to sing God's truth to tunes he used to know and kind of redeem the the, the riff or whatever you want to say, right? And it's like, it's actually kind of cool. And he used it and it was actually planting scripture in his mind and stuff. Ray, do you have a question? Just um, a comment. The uh, early revivalists, uh, mm-hmm. Charles Wesley, so on, yep. uh, were put out of the Anglican church and were criticized highly because they took bar to it. Yes. And put Christian words to it. Yeah. People That's usually most of the yeah. They got people singing spiritual words. Yeah. Um, I read an article that um, uh, who's the great English preacher for a moment? Uh, Whitfield? No. No. Uh, yeah, uh, Tabernacle. Uh, Wesley? No. Spurgeon. 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 Uh, when he first heard the Helen Louis Corpse. Okay, yeah. You know, the, yeah. Yeah. He refused to allow it to be played in Spurgeon's Tabernacle because it was too repetitious and really didn't communicate with <laughs> theological truth. Okay, wow. Yeah, so good point. I'm just going to say it for the sake of the podcast. Like some of the early hymn writers, right, basically borrowed bar tunes and got in trouble for that. And it's oddly enough, those are the hymns that would be referenced by these people of the more recent as like we should be singing these instead of singing other things, right? Here's the point and the takeaway. If we look back and rewind, let's say 30 years ago, 20 years ago, however long it was ago, whole masses of good intention Christian people got led astray 
into what I would say is overly restrictive legalistic behavior because they weren't able to understand scripture and apply it. They were led by perhaps charismatic leaders or they were led by people that imposed stricter guidelines and scripture imposed. And you know what? There's part of our sinful humanity that actually likes that sometimes where we just want to, we like to be narrower than what scripture tells more so that we can be self-righteous and look out at other, everybody else who's outside of that and say, you're not as holy as I am. So be on your guard against that today, because that will happen today in a different way, right? We're going to look at first Timothy one or four verse one and following later, but it talks about those that will deny marriage or those that will deny certain foods, right? So you get well-meaning Christians that could teach and tell you that being a vegan is actually more biblical than being a meditarian, whatever you want to call it, a carnivore, right? And not that there's anything wrong with, hey, if you want to stop eating meat, that's fine. But like, you're drawing, if you're making that now, this is a, a matter of righteousness, you're actually making an offense that the, the Bible doesn't make and you're actually going to cause other people to not have the freedom they could have in Christ because of that. And I think we just got to be watchful because in our, our culture, we are notorious for this. We're going to just sway along with what the church is doing right now, what the cultural church is doing, what YouTube churches are doing, right? And so all of a sudden we think, Oh, some churches are getting away from the sermon and they're doing table discussions in place of the sermon on Sunday morning because it's more, it's more interactive and it's more, it brings people in. And we might think, oh, like maybe there's some merit to that, right? But then we're forgetting, hey, wait, scripture says, like, preach the word, preach the word, preach the word, right? So there's going to be things and it's going to come in so many different ways and we have to be very mindful of those. And history just teaches us over and over again of that. And so, Whatever it is for us in the church today, just be, just be super mindful of that. We're in this church, we want to be mindful of not being, take this, take this carefully, but we don't want to be too liberal in the sense of going and doing things that scripture strictly forbid, forbids. And for example, changing our identity of or our position on marriage changing our position on gender identity and that kind of thing. We don't want to go too liberal. And so we're really mindful of those. But at the same time, we don't want to go and be, and this might like irk some of you, but like be too conservative in the sense of being more conservative than what scripture teaches and drawing all these fences that scripture doesn't teach and imposing them on people. Because then we're just being a bunch of Pharisees again, right? And we we're so getting caught up in being self-righteous, right? So just be mindful of that. Be willing to call into question how we're doing things and lining it up with scripture. Now, don't do that in a divisive way. This is like, you know, don't try to stir the pot and try to, we're going to reevaluate every single thing. But at the same time, be, be a critical thinker and think about the way we're doing it and ask questions. There's nothing that we as like elders and pastors and leaders of the church love more than people digging into scripture and asking honest, good-hearted questions, wanting to honor and serve God better. That like thrills us, even if it means asking a question about, okay, why do we sit in chairs on Sunday morning? That's probably not a great question. But if you're asking questions from a heart of, I want to serve, and you're not trying to be divisive, you're just trying to understand, that is amazing and awesome.
Okay, so some, th- some things to think about uh, in that regard, just about how we uh, understand teaching, or understand, uh, I guess, false teaching in this case. So how do they function? What's the purpose? So what's the function and purpose of demons? Basically, if you could summarize it in one sentence saying, demons are just like against God's will. They're working in adversity against his will and his plan, always. They're trying to destroy. They're trying to kill. They're trying to lie, deceive, take down God's plan, make sure the church doesn't advance, make sure that his plans don't go forward. That's their general MO, modus, whatever, right? So Luke 4, we'll spend a little bit of time here looking at Jesus as he's interacting. Jesus, before his ministry started, he went out into the wilderness and then he was tempted by the devil. And this is picked up in Luke 4 verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. So he's tempted in one sense, right? He's obviously never gives into the temptation, but the devil tries to, to bring something that would tear Jesus down. Jesus ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry, meaning Jesus was fully human. He had hunger. So he, 40 days was not like a, hey, piece of cake for Jesus, right? This was actually, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Notice that the devil here says, if you are the son of God, in Genesis 3, the devil says, if, you know, if, if, right? Does God really say? He's always kind of calling these things into question. If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. So on and on, the devil tempts, tempts, tempts. He tries to put thoughts in our head, tries to put things in front of us that just thwart us from God's plan. So if at any point Jesus had given into one of these things, Satan would be thwarting the plan of God. And obviously Jesus doesn't. He perfectly obeys. He's perfect uh, in that way. We spoke about this one last week a little bit, but Luke 8 verse 12 We talked about the parable of the sower, the seeds being sown, which is the word of God being sown on different types of soils. The one type of soil along the path, verse 12 of Luke 8, the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So essentially they've heard, but they're not not ready or they're kind of hardened. And so before it gets time to, you know, the seed doesn't just get time to wait around there and germinate when their heart is ready, Satan comes in and, and tries to steal that, steal that away. He's the, the thief in that sense, right? He oppresses believers, Ephesians 6, where we'll go a little later to talk about how we deal with them. But Ephesians 6 and verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So he certainly is oppressing. He's the one we wrestle against. We wrestle against this. Um, In just a few verses later, verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So he's trying to attack again, right? Trying to attack, trying to get through the shield. And they're using the metaphor of armor here, which we'll talk about in a little while about 
this is how we protect ourselves and defend ourselves uh, and go on the offense against the attacks of Satan. But he's certainly out to get believers. He is pictured as a vicious opponent. 1 Timothy 3 verse 6 gives us an example of perhaps an example of where the devil is condemning. So it says this is the qualifications for an elder. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So the condemnation of the devil here, some have said is actually like they might fall into the same condemnation the devil's getting because if you know he's proud, he shouldn't be a recent convert or he might become puffed up. He might be proud. And if he's proud, he's going to fall into the same condemnation the devil did for being pride, prideful. Probably not the best way to understand it. More accurate, more, another better way might be to say fall into the condemnation of the devil where the devil condemns him for his pride, um, which certainly isn't a good spot. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so he might not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Kind of the idea of the devil setting a trap for him in this sense. Uh, so either way, the devil is out to get leaders. Uh, in this case, leaders that maybe aren't qualified, right? They might have some areas in their life that aren't, aren't uh, mature enough. And so the devil is very interested in taking out those types of leaders. So condemnation or perhaps a snare. First Peter 5 verse 8, we'll just do a few more and then take a break. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 speaks about being sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Not literally, you're, probably, <laughs> you're not going to be eaten up uh, literally by the devil, but he's seeking to devour in terms of seeking to devour your faith, seeking to, to devour your, uh, your you in the sense of seeking to destroy you, right? Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by brotherhood throughout the world. That kind of gives us, we'll go back there, but as to how we resist. Okay, so he's into devouring, he's into deceiving, Revelation 12, 9. Uh, you can look that one up on your own time, but he's very much interested in deception. In fact, if you think of the word demon, just ingrain it in your head, deception. Demon, deception. Demon, deception. And the worst part is, when you're being deceived, you won't know you're being deceived if you're being truly deceived because you don't know when you're being deceived. That's the point of it, right? You don't realize. So that's why we need to equip ourselves with God's truth. Go to the truth and remember it because that is how we can uncover deception. So actually, you know what? This is going to work out perfectly with a little break. Uh, so 2 Corinthians, just before we do, 2 Corinthians 11 verses 14 tells us, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 14 tells us that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light at times. So it's no surprise if his servants, aka demons, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Could be, I guess his, his servants could be those who do his bidding, could be demons, could be evil men. But the idea being Satan's about deception, demons are about deception, the people that work for Satan are about deception. Deception, deception, lies, trying to misrepresent it. And to be honest, lies are one of the most powerful things Satan has. 
Because Satan's not all powerful, but he can make you, he can try to convince you and help you believe that he is all powerful. And if you believe that he's all powerful, he actually in your mind has more powerful, he has more power than he actually does. For example, if I was up here and I was to make you believe that I could actually determine your fate tonight on your drive home and you were to drive home scared that I could swerve your car off the road at any moment, if you actually went away believing that, I would have more power over you than I actually do. You would actually be like driving in fear and you don't need to drive in fear because there's no way I can do that. Right? Same kind of thing comes when it comes to Satan. He would, have, he would be delighted if you think he's more powerful than he actually is. He would be light, delighted if you could believe lies about him that aren't true. Or other lies that come in. So I have a whole list of lies, different things that I thought this week, uh, I didn't actually think this week, but things I know that have been attacks in the past. So things like Satan might try to tempt you or destroy you with lies like, you aren't saved. You aren't actually saved. You aren't actually a believer in Jesus. You aren't actually covered by the blood. You'll fail uh, just like your mom, just like your dad before you. I can actually remember a few years ago, I took a, one of our middle school students out for coffee. He's um, for coffee, <laughs> for hot chocolate or something. It wasn't coffee he was drinking. And I wasn't either because I don't drink coffee. So it's always, um, anyways, if I take you out for coffee, I'm never taking you out for coffee. I'm taking you out for chocolate milk. <laughs> so, um, so I want to be honest about that. So anyways, I've taken this, this, this student out and we were chatting and he comes from a broken family. His dad left the picture and is living in an estate somewhere in the States and left his mom for another lady and just a, a really sad situation. And I can remember talking to this guy who was in the, grade seven at the time, probably, and him expressing in his own way this huge fear he had of doing exactly what his dad would do. He's like, I, like if I ever get married, I'll probably divorce them. And you're just like, what? Like, why do you think that way? Well, that is totally Satan trying to just plant a thought and say, you are a failure just like your dad, and you always will be a failure. You always will be, a, so don't even bother, right? Just go in you've already lost the game. You're going to lose the game, right? That's just who you are. That's who your family is. That's what you're destined for. That's a lie. You could have lies that churchgoers eventually lose their passion. They always do, right? You could be just told this lie that, well, you know, after you're a Christian for like 20 years, it like kind of gets boring. Just like you might believe the lie that, you know, after 20 years of marriage, nobody's happy in marriage anymore. Like it always, it always goes sour. Those are all lies, Sure, they're true sometime, but that's not the true dominant truth. That's not the, the way it has to be. You could believe lies like, I'm mentally incapable of doing this. I'm lies like, I'll never be well again. You might be sick. You might, be, uh, you might have different mental struggles, and you might just believe a lie that this is how it's going to be forever. There's no, no getting better. You might belie- believe lies like, you don't want to live too extreme for Christ. That's kind of weird. Nobody really does that. That's not the expectation of you, right? The truth is, you know, Jesus actually calls you to an extreme life, an extreme life of dying to self, daily picking up your cross, lies like that. You might believe lies or come across lies of you've already arrived. Satan kind of tempting you or plaguing you with the thought like, no, you got this together. They're the idiots. 
they don't know what they're talking about, right? You're actually, you've actually arrived. Uh, lies like just a few more months of busyness and then I can serve God. Right now, I'm in a busy season. How many times have we said that? Like I've said that over and over and over again as an excuse not to start a daily habit, not to start a proper discipline or to get involved in something God's calling me to. I'm like, right now, it's a busy season. Well, that's a lie that Satan tells you. Like, absolutely. Just because I can tell you, my life has never gotten less busy than it has been, right? Anybody that has kids will just know it. And I'm told by anybody that has adult children, it's like, it actually doesn't get easier. And people that retire, people that retire that have all this time are like, I'm busier than I was when I was working, right? Like, it's just another lie out there, right? So different kinds of lies, lies of condemnation, lies that lying is okay, whatever. Okay, so you're going to have a break now for about... Uh, five, 10 minutes and on the break, you know, grab a drink or something, but also think up real quickly, a lie that Satan might have used in your life. Something that he might've planted as a thought that's personal to you. Be discerning because we're going to actually share this with the people next to us. So try to try to pick one of the lies that you feel comfortable sharing. You can think of a few, but think of on this break, What's one lie that I have been tempted to believe that could have been a thought planted by Satan or his, his demons? Okay, so that's your mission on your five-minute break. Go and break. Okay, we're going to get back to it. Unfortunately, we can't share right now all of the answers and scriptures and lies and stuff, but I want you to do that and carry that on after. Um, that... That exercise right there is something that hopefully you will find very helpful in the future. Um, it's very, very important if we're going to combat the deceiver. The only real combat that we have is the truth, the truth of God's word properly applied. And so memorize it, apply it, remind yourself of it, remind others of it, speak truth to others. That is key for the conquering the deceiver. Okay, real quickly, a few more um, a few more of the things that Satan or the devil or the demons do. I'm just going to read out a bunch because otherwise we're going to run out of time. Uh, so you can write these passages down to look up at home. So he does affliction, Job 2 verse 7. Affliction, Job 2 verse 7. There's also accusing, which we see multiple places, but especially there is an example in Zechariah 3 verses 1 and through 10. Zechariah 3 and verse 1 through 10. There's also him oppressing. I think we've already mentioned this one, but in Luke 13, 16, Luke 13, 16. There's again indwelling with Judas, the devil entered into, Satan entered into Judas, Luke 22, verse 3. That's Luke 22, verse 3. Disguising, we've already mentioned, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14. And then there is hindering from 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 18. 1 Thessalonians 2, 18. Paul is trying to get somewhere and he can't get there because he's been hindered by Satan, it says. And then this one, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9, pulled up on the screen. 
talks about the false signs and want and false signs and wonders, right? The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Again, deception, 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 right? Cool signs, cool wonders, but they're false. They're deceiving. They're not what they think, right? They're not what you, uh, what you think. Demons oppressed. There's lots of, lots of story after story. You could go through the New Testament, looking in the gospels where the demons oppress, they afflict, they, um, you know, cast the boy into the fire. In the one case, they cause the man to cut himself. In the other case, they cause another man to be mute. In another case, all, all different examples reading through the gospels. Here's one consideration though. Even as you look at all these activities, we're going to go to James 1 verses 13. And just remind ourselves that there are various places from which temptation and sin can come from, right? If you think of it as maybe three realms, right? Sin and temptation can come from Satan. Satan can obviously tempt you. You can also be tempted and uh, encouraged to sin by the world in which we live, right? It's a, a sin-inhabited world. It's a very sinful world we live in, so you're going to be tempted by that. But probably primary for most of us is our own flesh, Right? So James 1 verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted for God, by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Right? So God doesn't tempt you. God's not the, the source of your temptation. Verse 14, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth dead. De- brings forth death. This is like such an interesting passage, just showing the progression of sin. Sin, it like describes it like a pregnancy, right? It's kind of, kind of a weird thing to think about like birthing evil. It's a, just very, very weird. Uh, if there's, I, I've said this before, I probably shouldn't say this because it could be like really taken out of context, but I've, I've said it before. I think it's kind of an interesting way to say it. But if you ever want to say like, being pro-choice is good, right? Or like abortion is a good thing. This would be the only type of abortion that's allowed, right? Cut off sin before it is fully grown and matured, right? No other type of abortion. But this is like abort sin. Abort sin the very moment you can. Abort sin, right? And so this is giving us just a temp- an understanding that temptation comes from often our own desire, our own flesh, right? So I don't want you to walk out of here tonight and say the classic line, the devil made me do it, right? Oh, I was tempted, but the devil made me do it. No, that's not the, how the case, that's not the case. As a Christian, especially as a Christian, you are now no longer enslaved to sin. And so yes, Satan might be able to place a thought, might be able to tempt you. But if you step into it, you only have yourself to blame. Okay, you only have yourself to blame. There's also uh, just lots of examples of that. You don't, you're going to be accountable for your sin in the end. So real quickly, an overview. If you think of demons in the whole of scripture, in the Old Testament, demons weren't really properly expelled from people like Saul, who uh, was, you could say, like indwelt or afflicted by this, this demon. David played his music. He left, but the demon came back. It's not until Jesus comes that, Satan, like, that Satan's power is actually like 
diminished, like he's a sign of Jesus coming and a sign of Jesus' authority is found Mark 1 verse 27. Actually, we'll look at this for a moment. Uh, Mark 1 verse 27 just highlights for us that all were amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Jesus, he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. So this was novel. This was new. They were like, the thing, if you read through, I think it's Matthew's gospel account of Jesus, you'll just see it over and over again. They're like, he's got authority. He's got authority. Like Jesus has authority. This is something that is, is new uh, and is very, very, uh, very important. So in the Old Testament, there's demonic activity, but it doesn't seem like believers really have the authority given to them. Jesus has authority over demons. He gives this authority to his disciples and they go out and cast out demons. He also gives this authority to uh, a group of more than just the 12 disciples, uh, which we're going to read about in Luke. I believe it's Luke chapter. I think it's Luke chapter 10. I might have this wrong here. Luke chapter 10, yes, where he appoints the 72 others to go out and he gives them the authority to be able to cast out demons and they do that and then they come back to him. Verse 17, Luke 10, verse 17. The 72 people that Jesus has sent out come back, returning with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So Jesus gave this power apparently out to more than just his disciples at that time. The ability to have the demons be subject to us in your name. This is key, right? It's only in the name of Jesus that they had authority. This is really interesting though. Verse 18, and he said to them, uh, wait, no, this is not the, oh yes. It, yes, okay. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, which kind of is the idea of like Satan now long, uh, no, his authority has been broken, Right. Verse 19, behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. This was specific to those 72 at that time. Don't try it. Serpents and scorpions and picking up snakes is not, not what we're commanded to do. Nevertheless, this verse 20, this is what's interesting. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So he's trying to highlight for them. Hey, hey, whoa, whoa. Like this is, Yes, I've given you this authority, these 72, he's given this authority, but don't get all interested in the authority. Like that's not the big deal. The big deal is your salvation, right? Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So Old Testament demons, not really having, uh, believers don't really have authority over necessarily. New Testament, Jesus does. He gives this authority to, to his followers, uh, to certain of his followers, right? And then we'll, and we'll, we'll hone in on that in a moment, a little bit more about the specifics. But then in the future millennium, in the future, I should say, in the future, if you read Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 20, uh, Revelation chapter 20, verses one to three, we're going to read, we're going to read, then it says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand, the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So this we believe depending on your, your version of your view of eschatology, but we believe this is a future 
thousand year period where Satan will be bound, will not have the ability to deceive people, where, where it's going to go later talking about who's going to be reigning at that time. So this is like the future. But then at the end of that thousand year, Satan will be released, deceived. There's going to be a, a big fight, big problems. Satan gets cast then into the lake of fire. So that's his end, right? That's where he and his angels, his devils are eventually, or his demons are eventually going. What I want you to just take away from this though, during that thousand years, scripture shows us that sin is not absent. It's not like there's no more sin on the world during that thousand year reign. There's still a sin problem. So even when Satan is bound, even when Satan is out of the picture, there's still a sin problem. So that means we certainly can't blame all our sin on Satan and say, oh, Satan made me do it. Kind of that idea again. Okay, so that's uh, referring to the future. His ultimate end, Matthew 25, verses 41, speaks of the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Revelation 20 speaks of that as well, speaks of the devil and his angels being cast into this eternal fire. So we're not going to have this problem forever, right? At some point, there's going to be ultimate destruction in the lake of fire for them forever. So some application now for a few minutes before Q&A. So we have all this Satan, demons, their power kind of laid out for us. We see that Jesus had power over them. That power was given to his initial and early disciples to cast out demons. That carries over even into Acts, Acts chapter 8. I believe Acts chapter 8, there's evidence of demons still being cast out. But you transition into the New Testament epistles, and all of a sudden, that kind of language isn't the primary language. It's not like the, Paul's letters to the Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and etc. are filled with, and cast out demons and do this and do that. So it's important that we look then at what Scripture does kind of say for the church now, what is our primary responsibilities, and then have some, some understanding of what might be possible, but may not, what's maybe not necessarily scripturally mandated. So first thing for application that I think is important is we got to be able to identify demonic activity. This I know is huge for me. How do I know when it's demonic activity and how do I know when it's my flesh? How do I know when it's just bad pizza the guy had or how do I know what it is, right? And the problem with this is that when it comes to the physical and the spiritual and the, the clarity, it's not always so clear, right? So first of all, demons afflicted people spiritually and at times demons afflicted people physically. Never, uh, I, I could say, I don't think they ever afflicted somebody physically and not spiritually, but sometimes it was more spiritual than physical. But our physical and spiritual dimensions are not so easily separated, right? So when we think of today, somebody, what some would maybe classify as like a mental illness could actually be demonic oppression. And we would just have some difficulty trying to understand, okay, is this mental illness or what is this? Is this demonic oppression and trying to understand the difference between the two? So how do we approach our problems? The first thing I would just say as 
very, very scriptural application is no matter what problem, no matter what situation, whether you think it's demonic, whether you think it's a hormonal issue, whether you think it's uh, I broke my arm, whether it, whatever the case, the first recourse of every Christian all the time is prayer. Pray without ceasing. So I would even argue you're about to call 911. You pray. You don't need to wait Somebody's dying on the road and I'm going to pray and then call 911. But even as you're calling 911, you're like, Lord, help us. Like, like it doesn't have to be a long prayer, right? When uh, Nehemiah is in the coming before the king trying to ask his request, he quickly prayed a prayer in his heart before the Lord, right? And just reminds us, okay, a prayer doesn't have to be a five-minute thing. But first, first, first course of action, always, 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 always prayer, communing with the Father, right? And so I think that applies when it comes to every problem we encounter. So you have uh, severe anxiety. The first recourse is always prayer. Whether you think it's demonic or whether you think it's not, the first recourse is always prayer. We have doctors for a reason, and I think they're a huge blessing. And I know sometimes pastors might get a, a bad rap because they kind of point to the spiritual things. But the problem is like, I feel like nobody else is pointing to the spiritual things, right? The world we live in is always pointing to the physical things, not the spiritual things. And so we need to kind of bring things back appropriately, realizing that spiritual issues, sin issues, perhaps even demonic issues are at the root of way more than what we realize. So in one sense, we don't want to give Satan too much credit. We don't want to give two demons too much credit, but every single sin is in some sense demonic, right? So it's not maybe as outright demonic, but any sin is still deception, is lies, is unbelief, is not walking with the Lord. Uh, whatever sin it is you, you, you might pick a sin of, is a sin of disbelief. In every situation, that's in some sense demonic because of its source and its origin. So a couple of notes to help us as we're thinking about identification. Not all physical ailments are demonic. We obviously hopefully know this. Luke 13, 32, demons and healing are mentioned both together, but they're separated. So it's kind of two terms. It's not like healed them by ex like taking demons out. It's demons and healing. I don't think it's going to be hard for most of us here to think like you cut your finger on a, on a piece of paper. That's not a, it's not a demon, right? That's just a cut on a piece of paper. Um, Matthew 4, 24, there seems to be again, a difference between physical ailments and the demonic. But in Matthew 17 verses 15 to 18, a boy is thrown into the fire who has epilepsy. And it, it seems to be almost connected in that sense. So the, the key is spiritual discernment is necessary spiritual discernment is going to be necessary. We need to recognize all demonic activity is going to point to the destruction of the person. So demonic activity isn't nice. Obviously, we, we kind of know that, right? Demonic activity in the New Testament, it, you can go and kind of research the, ex, the uh, different accounts, but demonic activity in the New Testament seems to be as a reaction to gospel proclamation. So it seems like when the gospel is being proclaimed, that's when resistance comes. So if you are sitting on your haunches doing nothing and you're feeling demonic activity, it could just be your flesh, <laughs> right? But if you're actually like pressing forward, obeying Christ, like moving forward and you recognize demonic activity, 
then there might be something to it. Demonic activity uh, goes for destruction. It goes for false teaching. First John four verses two to three. If you recognize, if you, if you hear false teaching, uh, there could be a, a sense of demonic uh, activity there. If somebody is saying Jesus is cursed, <laughs> Romans 12 verse three, it's, it's demonic activity. Um, and so recognizing those at the end of the day, there is not a filter that we are given that says, okay, just apply this filter and okay, here's the diagnosis. You have a demon. Apply this filter. You don't have a demon, right? There's, it's, not, it's not so neat and tidy. Here's what I would recommend. If you are trying to be keen and aware of the spiritual realm, first of all, be planted in the word, right? So, so many people talk about what God's doing, talk about what the devil is doing, but they don't know their Bible, like at all, right? If you don't know your Bible, if you don't know what God has said and know what the truth is, it's going to be a lot, lot harder to discern the lie, right? I, yes, I know like the spirit will lead us into all truth is scriptural. However, God gave us his word to be truth, right? So you can't just go around as some would say and say, like, I have the Holy Spirit living in me. I don't need to read the Bible. I know truth. That's just not how it works, right? God's given us the tool of his word. And so as you read God's word, as you experience life, you may encounter situations where you think there is actually a demonic element in it. As I was speaking with uh, Pastor Aaron this week a little bit about it, we were trying to understand, okay, how do you tell? And, you know, again, there's no hard and fast filter we can apply, but uh, one of the things he suggested is maybe a potential, maybe a potential is thinking, okay, if you have, let's say you as a Christian, maybe being oppressed by the devil, have a thought, which is just so out of character, so intense, so sinful, so satanic in that sense, it could be demonic oppression. But if you have something that's like, you know, kind of, okay, you know, my family is like, tends to work a lot. So if I have like, temptation to work a lot. That's probably not so much demonic. That's probably just more my flesh, right? To be like a workaholic or to find my identity in, in my work, right? That's probably not demonic in origin. So just thinking like, okay, if there's something like out of the ordinary, obviously we don't want to right away go to, you know, uh, what, what floor of the hospital is the psych ward, like the fourth floor, second floor, third floor, and just say like, everybody's demon possessed, right? probably not accurate. But at the same time, recognizing there could be elements of that. And you probably, as a spirit being, having the Holy Spirit residing within you, are going to have, and I don't think there's a good way to explain this, like a sixth sense at times, right? So the times when you're like, that person's a Christian, and then you're like, they are a Christian, right? That your spirit's aware that there perhaps is that element where your spirit is aware that there is something like just so evil and wrong about what's going on in that situation or that life or whatever it is um, that you're just aware in that way. So we want to be careful. I don't know if that actually helped us a lot, but I think identifying what demonic activity will be associated with false teaching, um, blasphemy, uh, sometimes extreme evil can be an example. So combating demonic activity. So this is where most of us tonight are asking the question, unfortunately I'm using up all our time, but we're asking the question, what should I do? 
Okay, what do I do about it? What do I do about it? Well, the question we should not ask is so much what should I do before we ask the foundational question of what has been done, right? So when Jesus died on the cross, he broke the curse of sin. And that is absolutely huge. So Jesus is the one that defeats Satan and his demons. And we see then the way Jesus is even before his death uh, dealing with demons. He battles them with truth. Luke 4, you look at the temptation of Jesus. Jesus doesn't try to just do away with the devil. He combats him with truth. And so that's where I was talking about the lies that are presented. Battle them with truth. You need to know truth. Jesus does it in other ways. Of course, he's Jesus. He uses a simple command at times. He uses the spirit of God. He sometimes alludes to the finger of God. The disciples he gives the authority to, it's authority given to them. It's not their own authority. And they're not to be excited about the authority over demons, but more about their position in Christ. At times, faith is needed. At times, more prayer. Mark 9 verse 29 talks about more prayer uh, being needed. At times, there's the faith of the participant necessary. Mark 9 verses 23 to 24. But then it's not always mentioned, so it's not necessarily always the majority. So the Gospels and Acts is where the majority of demon casting out happens. Once you get beyond the gospel and acts, it goes to places like Ephesians 4, which talks about in your anger, do not sin and don't give the devil a foothold. So there's going to be like several passages I'll give you as kind of reading homework to read. Ephesians 4 being one of them, the whole, the whole book of Ephesians, read it. Um, it's very, very helpful. Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 6 especially are the primary ways I think that God has given us to fight the devil. So Ephesians 6, we spoke about this earlier, but the armor of God. Finally, 6 verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then it goes on to talk about the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes equipped with the gospel of peace, the sword of the spirit, right? The shield of faith. These are all different resources God has given us to combat Satan and his demons. So just notice it doesn't emphasize talking about casting out demons of other people. It, it emphasizes resisting James four, verse seven, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Right. Or we talk about draw near unto God and he will draw near unto you. And so the primary ways that we deal with the devil today we speak truth, we pray, we declare, we declare truth, we use the, the weapons he's given us, we live righteous lives. When we don't live righteous lives and we live angry lives, we actually have like holes in our armor where we're giving Satan opportunity to afflict and oppress us that are unnecessary, not to possess us or to indwell us, but to wreak havoc in our lives. And so a righteous life, a faithful life, a prayerful life, resisting the devil, testing the spirits, 1 John 4 verse 1 is another way. Knowing the word, right? So battling, battling the, devi, the devil isn't super flashy. It's not super sexy work, right? It's, it's hard work. Uh, it's being equipped in God's word. Being aware that demonic activity still exists is important. So we talked previous weeks about like, false angels of light, perhaps coming like Satan masquerading as an angel of light. And perhaps that is what explains 
Mormonism and their false encounter with this angel where perhaps that encounter actually did happen, but that encounter was filled with falsehood. Same thing with Islam, same kind of idea. So recognizing that, being aware that it exists. So do we cast out demons? It doesn't seem like that is the norm given to us after the gospel and acts. But say you were to encounter somebody that is unsaved, that you have this sense there is demonic activity going on. Speak the truth. Speak the gospel. Pray. Right? Pray that God would free them from that. And the power of the Holy Spirit is what's doing it anyway. So whether you, you say, leave evil spirit, or you pray, God, free that person from this evil spirit, it doesn't probably really matter. Because at the end of the day, it's the Holy Spirit doing the work. But the reality is, it still is existing. Recognize, though, don't fear the demonic. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We have access to the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, which is far greater. And so we have far more power in that sense. Recognize, though, the more subtle ways of Satan in our world today, right? The subtlety of deception, the subtlety of an unrighteous life, the subtlety of not proclaiming the gospel, not having the shoes of the gospel uh, on your feet, right? Not actually proclaiming. Beware of perhaps the apathy that Satan encourages. So beware of some of those more subtle ways. Okay. Yep. I'm going to end it there because then a couple questions. Yep. Go for it. Grace, he, then, hmm, I'm not sure. John 4 4? First John 4 4? Yes, good. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You are from God and have overcome them, right? Thank you, yes. Okay, so one person mentioned last week or via an email something about ghosts, right? Where do ghosts fit in this whole thing, right? And interestingly, so I haven't gotten a chance to do as much research on that as I hoped, but I can think back to, if you read older translations of the Bible, they reference God, the Holy Spirit as Holy Ghost, because at that time, it must have been that ghosts were more equated with what we understand as spirits today, right? The spirit, non-physical kind of idea. The reason the translators kind of got away from using the Holy Ghost instead of the Holy Spirit is probably because of the cultural connotation that ghost has taken, where it's these white wispy things moving around and it kind of doesn't communicate what the Holy Spirit really is, right? Yeah, well, it, yeah, ghosts are, yeah, those spirits are kind of scary too, <laughs> to be honest, when you think about it, right? But in that sense, it depends, I guess, on what you define as ghost. I kind of, in my head, ghost equals spirit, unless it's the fictitious white cloaked two eye hole things that like are in car- uh, like Casper the ghost or something, right? Like probably just, uh, you could ask the same question about what about hobbits, right? Like are hobbits scriptural? It's like, no, it's like made up, right? So that was one of the questions that I think came. Other questions in the last few minutes that we have?
We'll make it super easy if you don't have any. <laughs> yes, <laughs> go for it. Yeah, so that I guess would be coming to the, uh, I guess, your understanding of scripture. I don't know that I would personally lean in that direction. It doesn't seem like it's said not to. The only caution I would give you is in Acts, I think it's chapter 16, there's people that try to mimic what the disciples and Jesus are doing in trying to cast out demons. And they actually bring a whole lot of terror on themselves. The, uh, yeah, Sceva, yes. Seven sons of Sceva, right? So look that up. That's not going to happen to you as a believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, I think it's Acts 16. I don't know that we got there. Uh, Acts 19, rather. Acts 19, verse 11 to 16. The seven sons of Sceva. So there's, there's differences, I guess, of opinion. We... Like at Harvest, we talk about scripture doesn't give us warrant to bind Satan in Jesus' name. There's no like scriptural evidence for that. The, the primary ways we're told to deal with it is resist the devil, flee from him, be innocent what's evil, so don't be too overly fascinated with it. Speak truth. I suppose I, suppose I, wouldn't, I, I, like, I wouldn't condemn somebody that does that if they're doing it in Jesus' name, Jesus' authority, not your power. If you're doing something like that to bring promotion to yourself, totally not appropriate, right? Um, but yeah, does that answer your question? So sort of like if, you're, if you have the scriptural conviction that that's okay, just be very authority grounded in Jesus Christ. We're probably not going to promote that directly because that's the power of the Holy Spirit. Yep. Good. Yeah, bringing Jesus into the moment of fear yeah. by just praising his name over and over and over and the yeah. atmosphere immediately. Yeah, that's good. So with kids, so really good because the culture tells us go in, lift up the bed, say there's no monsters. Mm-hmm. Basically say there is no such thing as the demonic, when in fact it could be. Right? So tell them there's nothing. In fact, when they, in fact there could very well be, right? So yeah, tell them, don't tell them, don't tell them there's, just, there's actually demons under your bedside. <laughs> Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now, just as a, okay, I had this conversation today with several of our staff. This might, I, this isn't a fully developed thought, but I want to put it out there so you guys start thinking. My son is four years old has not yet made a clear profession of faith. So, as I understand it, he is not saved. But I'm like, okay, I'm trying to train him and disciple him. So here's where it gets a little challenging for me or my daughter, who's two, who 
she, she's actually probably closer in some ways to articulating it well, even though her attitude's maybe not so much. <laughs> but, but I have difficulty when I'm in her room at two in the morning and she's crying and scared because my first inclination is to say, pray to Jesus and ask him you know, to, to comfort you in those moments. Because can, can we ask our children to pray if they are not yet believers? And so this is kind of debatable. Um, and I'm still trying to sort through it because there's scriptural evidence that you would say, like train up a child in the way they should go or Deuteronomy, you know, uh, teaching them along the way. And so I actually teach my children to pray. But right now I'm trying to focus on teaching them to pray to thank God rather than teaching them to pray to ask God for things until the point when they actually have made him Lord and Savior. Because we have a danger of promoting in our kids the idea they're already saved when they're not. So just be mindful of that. Tied to that, I've been chatting with our children's ministry to just try to just, this is kind of, I guess, a tangent, but when we pray with our children, it's so important that we are praying to God the whole time and not praying to our kids. So like we always praying to God, but I've just noticed in my own life when I'm praying in front of my kids, sometimes I like my prayers sound like kids, <laughs> right? I sound like all of a sudden I switch my voice in my inflection. I change all the terms and not that that's all bad because we want to make it understandable for our kids. But just as an encouragement to you, when you are speaking to God in front of your kids, you're always speaking to God. So train your kids. Like you, can, you don't have to use the word sanctification in your prayer with your kids. You can say made more like him. But as you're praying, just remember, I guess, this is what I'm being challenged. Remember, your primary audience isn't your kids. Your primary audience is God, the Father, who you have a relationship with. So if your prayers all of a sudden start to sound drastically different when you're in front of different, like in front of your kids, it's not actually training your children in how to, pray to God, right? Um, so anyways, it's kind of a tangent, but thinking about, okay, like encouraging our kids to pray, we want to encourage them. I want to encourage my daughter. And so I do this. I say, you know, as you make, if you make Jesus your Lord and your savior, you're protected from this stuff. If you trust him that, you know, you're a sinner and that he's your savior and they can understand that even at three years old, right? If you trust him, you're protected from this. I don't tell them the other side, right? If you don't, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I try to be careful with that, right? But just think about that. So any other quick questions before we go? Yeah, Ray. Formula prayers. Formula prayers. Oh, that's kind of off topic, but formula prayers. We got the Lord's Prayer given to us. Oh. When we're praying and resisting the devil, we ought to say, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth uh, and the power of his blood, according to the word of God, they had this formula. Yeah, it's not granted. So, yeah, it's to- that, that's not uh, evidenced even by the life of Jesus. Jesus, I guess he is Jesus himself, but he says, like, like he says in very different ways of dealing with it. So I would say that's not scripturally evidenced. But if you're doing it in your own authority, that's problematic. So it has to always be grounded in the authority of God. I would say, my primary thing would be just praying to God, saying, like, release them from this. Like, you know, quoting scripture and quoting truth to the person. But formulaic prayers, I don't think there's any scriptural evidence for that. So um, don't underestimate the power of your mind. 
you're to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So bathing it in scripture. But when you're not doing that, your mind can do some pretty scary, twisted things. And so remember, ground yourself in God's word. Okay, I'm going to leave it there so that I don't hold you up. But if you have other questions, come uh, and ask for sure. I'll stick around for a bit. And if any of them are like really good questions that need to be dealt with for all of us, I'll kind of recap those quick next week at the beginning. So next week actually is March break. So enjoy. Uh, And then after March break, so today is March 6th. So the 13th, we're off. The 20th, we're back. And the 27th as well. And we're talking about the Holy Spirit for those two weeks. So it's going to be exceptionally good. Um, So yeah, you're dismissed.